Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to The Peripheral. The funny thing about me putting out a lot of these episodes is I have all these ideas. I have a lot of emotions about the episode as I'm interviewing the guest and editing. But then weeks, two months later, when I'm finally putting out the episode, I've forgotten all the things that were on my mind. I put out really bland intros where I just introduce the person and just get on with the show. And I hope to change that. I wanted to give a quick shout out to everybody I got to meet in Nashville at CrimeCon. It was great meeting the captain and Nick from True Crime Garage and hanging out with Shane from the podcast Out of the Shadows. Beck and Tyler from Minds of Madness were there. It was so awesome hanging out with them in person, uh, thinking sideways. The trail went cold. There's so many more people to mention, but it would take... 20 minutes for me to go through the list so I'm sorry. I will be in New Orleans with Aaron for the Potter and Love convention August 10th through 12th. If you are going, you can use the code Y and get a discount. I'm currently in talks with Jeremy and the promoters about doing a live show for the peripheral. But being that the peripheral is more about my guests than me, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to approach this and possibly have somebody come on stage with me and tell their story. We do have some time constraints. I'm trying to figure out if it'll be possible for someone to tell their story in 45 minutes or less. So with this episode, it is part two. It's a completely different story from a completely different guest, but I do think that they go hand in hand so you can listen to this and then go back and listen to the last episode the more we travel down this path of what the peripheral has become the more i realize how intertwined mental health addiction and abuse all are it seems obvious yet hearing story after story and seeing different behaviors manifest from similar causes It's just become more and more eye-opening, for me at least. So on this episode, have you ever lashed out in a self-destructive way? Have you ever used other people to make yourself feel better? My guest, Mary, will answer these questions during her story. And it's to an extreme that she had to come to terms with her own actions and decide to make some changes. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing wonderful. Uh, we'll jump into your story, okay? Yeah. My name is Mary, and I just wanted to share my experiences about sex addiction and some of what I went through during 
what I consider to be one of the darkest times of my life. And this topic came up and I, I kind of felt the need to share my story, even though it's been, it's been a while. This happened, you know, a number of years ago and it really peaked primarily when I was in college, but I'm still really feeling the repercussions of it today. You know, most notably, I really ruined a lot of relationships and friendships, you know, as a result of that. You know, I, I wanted to just share my story because sex addiction is one of those things that is still really highly debated, uh, whether or not it actually exists as a psychological diagnosis on its own. You know, sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior is kind of tagged to other disorders like bipolar disorder. It can be related to that. And there's a few other things where it can be part of the symptoms of those disorders, but it's really still highly debated if it's actually exists by itself. A lot of people question it because, you know, we've even seen most recently people like Harvey Weinstein, you know, him claiming that he was a sex addict. So I think a lot of people may look at it with a lot of skepticism, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I know what I went through. You know, I, I never really got into the, the uh, online dating or the Tinder uh, thing because by then I was already dating my now husband mm -hmm. and now I'm married. But I feel like the conversations are starting to crop up a little bit more because of the accessibility to sex. And, you know, I, I will say up front too, I think having sex and multiple sex partners is not something that anybody should be ashamed of. I don't think it's a bad thing to explore your sexuality. If there's a single person and a single person and they want to have sex, I think it can be a really good, healthy way for people to explore their sexuality. And I mean, we have sex for pleasure. It's part of life. We like to have sex. It's fun. It feels good. You know, so yeah. at the same time, I don't think people should be shamed for having multiple sex partners. But I think the designation is sex really shouldn't come between you and your friends. It shouldn't come between you and your family. It shouldn't destroy relationships. It shouldn't be the only thing you're concerned about. Mm -hmm. You know, it should, be, it should be fun. It should be healthy. You know, it shouldn't take over your life, um, which is where my story kind of veered off into, where I used to keep a list. <laughs> and I, since, I think I destroyed that list a long time ago, but I know that I got up to at least 70 sex partners mm -hmm. within a few years. There were instances where it got into levels of borderline prostitution. It really destroyed a lot of relationships that I had with people because it became an unhealthy obsession. Oh. I look back on it now and it's, it's hard. It's, it's kind of hard to know that it reached those levels where it was unhealthy and it was unsafe and it wasn't pleasurable and it wasn't fun. But that's kind of where I think that designation lies, where you're not doing it to have fun, but I was doing it out of total lack of respect for myself and my own boundaries. So what age did you start and how long before you realized you had a problem? Um, I would say it started um, probably around the tail end of my freshman year of college. So I, 19, 19, I guess, 20. I, I think I knew I had a problem maybe a year into me having these partners where 
the the numbers just kept growing and growing and growing. And there was actually one instance in particular when I was in, in school. And I remember this as like kind of that moment where I stopped and I kind of thought like, maybe this isn't good. It was a Friday at my school. A lot of classes were either they were out really early on Fridays or there really there really weren't a lot of Friday afternoon classes available at my school. Like it really seemed like the professors didn't even want to teach on a Friday. Yeah. So a lot of students kind of had Fridays as kind of like a free day. I had gotten out of my morning class. A guy texted me and was like, hey, do you want to come over? So I went over to his house. We had sex. You know, we're cleaning up and obviously it wasn't a situation where they would, you know, we would hang out and have dinner, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was very much a kind of a transactional situation. How would you instigate? But, like, how would you say, like, let's go back to your house? Like, was, was there any, I guess I, I just, well, I, I never reached out to anybody. Mm-hmm. They always reached out to me. Okay. I kind of got that reputation mm-hmm. a little bit. There were some guys where it was just once there were some guys where it was kind of a, a, a regular instance but you know they would they would contact me and be like hey you know can you come over and i knew what that meant because mm-hmm. it we weren't friends yeah. it was literally just you know sex and that's it and i went over to that first guy's house we had sex we were cleaning up after you know getting dressed and then i get another text on my phone from guy number two and he says hey can you come over so from house number one I go to house number two, mm-hmm. have sex with that guy. As we're having sex, I get a text message from another guy, guy number three. So from house number two, I go to house number three, have sex with guy number three. And then as I'm leaving guy number three's house, I think to myself, I just had sex with three guys in an hour and a half, two hours. That was when I realized that because I, I walked away from each guy literally feeling nothing, mm-hmm. you know, like there was a sense of accomplishment, but I also felt it was, it was not pleasurable. It wasn't satisfying. It was like a compulsion. It was like, it was like a zombie, mm-hmm. you know, like I would just do these things without really thinking of them. But that was the first instance where I really was like, huh, I don't think this is normal. <laughs> You know, and that was, like I said, that was probably when I was, you know, 21, 22, but it didn't stop after that. It, you know, it kept continuing, you know, and it continued basically until um, probably a year out of college. But when you, when you did this, uh, I mean, you're saying it's not pleasurable, but what, was there (laughs) a, was there a drive? Were you seeking, I guess, uh, acceptance were you seeking uh companionship or did you just not care you know and this this was kind of something that i didn't really discover until after the fact when i started seeing a therapist you know because i was i finally when i was out of school i was able to get a job and i went on my own health care plan so i was finally able to see a psychologist on my own without my parents you know, permission. So that was the first time where we really kind of delved into it. And this is kind of where my, my background, I guess, becomes a little bit more applicable. I've always had 
a really bad relationship with my parents. My parents, I guess you could say, are very textbook narcissists. It was also very hard because from the outside, we we definitely kind of had that um, perception of the typical good old American family. And my parents were very good at putting on this kind of outside appearance, but it was very hard. It was very hard growing up with them. There was a lot of manipulation. There was a lot of, I would say, verbal abuse. You know, my my parents would always call me ugly and fat and stupid and piece of shit. I mean, I I really hated myself growing up because my parents hated me for whatever reason. And I had a really hard time. And especially, you know, being a girl and kind of being a girl who already didn't feel like she fit into typical girly things. You know, I was always kind of a little bit of a tomboy and I was always kind of not into the same things that other girls were. And weirdly enough, when I was a kid, I really wasn't into boys. Um, you know, all the girls around me had, you know, their little boyfriends and everything. And I, I didn't date anyone until I had my first boyfriend when I was, uh, 18 you know, I, I already I already felt different. And then to feel demoralized like that, it just it didn't it didn't go well. And when I was in high school, I actually developed an eating disorder. I was severely anorexic. The doctor that I went to go see actually wanted to put me into an inpatient program, mm-hmm. which is generally where the worst cases go, where they you, I mean, it is what it is you go into the hospital and you go through this intensive program in order for you to gain weight. They'll monitor you and it's a very intensive program and that's how severe I was that they really recommended that I do it and my parents didn't want me to because they didn't want anybody to ask questions. Although I think anybody that probably looked at me at that time knew that something was wrong. I don't think anyone else would ask any other questions. Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, I mean, even when I was going through my recovery, my parents were still very not supportive. I would go through these instances where I would, I would gain a little bit of weight and my mom, she would see a celebrity on TV and she'd be like, Oh, so-and-so is getting fat. And she would look at me and be like, I hope you never get that fat. And I mean, it was just, that total manipulation where I just, I felt like the ugliest, worst person in the world. And I I felt just so ugly. And like, even my mom would say things like, um, I do, I do have a a sister in particular that was always kind of my parents' favorite. And we would be out at, at the grocery store or something. And we would pass a group of teenage boys. And my mom would be like, did you see the way they looked at your sister? well, they're never going to look at you like that because you're an ugly piece of shit. You know, like she was just, she was so intense about my looks and the way that I was. And, you know, it was always really hard for me because even though I made a physical recovery from my eating disorder, I felt like I I didn't really make a psychological uh, recovery from my eating disorder for a long time because it was basically like my parents were pressuring me to get better because they didn't want, they didn't want any more embarrassment. They didn't want anybody to ask questions, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, like 
I still felt horrible about myself. I like, even though I had made that recovery on the inside, I just still felt just like the ugliest, ugliest person in the world. I can kind of see where it's going, where you're beaten down, your self-esteem is crushed and the people that you seek the most support and attention from your parents are just shitting on you. And mm -hmm. this drives a yearning for love, for affection. And yeah. what better yeah. way? Yeah. Totally. And, and that kind of what I think I could look back and kind of see the first instance that maybe triggered some of where that road eventually went down because like I said, I did have a boyfriend when I was, you know, 18, my first boyfriend, he, he was the person that I lost my virginity to, but at the same time, like, and I don't mean to sound, you know, shitty about it, but I remember when I had sex for the first time with my first boyfriend, I didn't even really like sex then. I mean, I, like, and that sounds so rude and I really don't mean for it to sound rude, but I remember having sex with him for the first time and being like, that's it. Yeah. That's what everyone is all like talking about and so concerned about. Like it just, it just, and you know, I think it's because we weren't meant to be and it wasn't romantic. It was yeah. two teenagers not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's two monkeys but... <laughs> wrestling over a football. Really? There is, there's no yeah. enjoyment. I don't, I don't think I've, <laughs> I've spoken to like a single female that's ever said, Oh, when I lost my virginity, it was wonderful and beautiful. No, that just doesn't right. happen. And even <laughs> for guys, it's not always this shining moment of pleasure either. Mm -hmm. It's usually a very short lived, uh, premature <laughs> situation. But, exactly. But that happened then when I was in college and I had broken up with my boyfriend and I had sex with another guy. He was like, he was like, you're so hot. You're so sexy. You know, and he was very complimentary of me. And I, I mean, I was like, really? Because I had never, nobody ever told me that before. Nobody had ever told me that I was sexy and beautiful and hot. And it was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds, I, I think it sounds kind of stupid, but for me, I, I mean, I was so broken. I hated myself. I hated everything about myself. I, I thought I was stupid. I thought I was ugly. I thought I would never really be happy. I thought that no, no one would ever take a second look at me. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden this guy is not only having sex with me, but he's complimenting me in this, in these ways. And I was like, wow, I really think that that was the moment where I started associating feeling good and feeling loved with having sex. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it, you know, when it really started intensifying and really started getting to a point where the numbers of guys that I was sleeping with was getting higher and higher and higher. I think subconsciously it was a way of being like, well, fuck you mom, because you know, look at all these men that want me now. And mm -hmm. you know, I know it sounds really stupid, but I think that's really the way that I felt. I mean, obviously I wasn't thinking that at the time, but subconsciously that must have been what was happening because 
to be told that you're worthless and ugly and all these things. This is your way but, of rebelling. Uh, this is your way of getting yeah. back. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I I get it. Yeah. it. It makes logical sense even even if it's not the right decision. I can follow your train of thought, definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is fine and dandy, but woohoo having sex awesome. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, again, sex sex itself is not bad and it's nothing anybody should be ashamed for, but I'm you know, I get kind of sarcastic about it because now I look back and what actually prompted me to reach out to you with my story is because, like I said, I, I ruined so many friendships and so many relationships as a result of my actions, which I'll, I'll get into in a little bit. But what kind of brought it back to my attention was when my husband and I got married fairly recently and we were putting together the guest list for our wedding you know, that's a process because you need to think of, you know, pretty much every person you've ever known. Mm-hmm. And if you can fit them into your budget and your planning and everything like that, when I started putting together the list for my side, I realized I had, I had no friends and I knew why. And I hadn't really needed to face that before until I started putting together that wedding list. Mm-hmm. and. I had no no college friends at my wedding because I didn't have any to invite. I think what really put it into contrast for me was, <clears throat> you know, like I said, I've, I've got siblings and they're all married. In their weddings, they had all of these friends from college come. Their college friends stood up in their weddings. They stood up in their college friends' weddings. I mean, they were all, they're all close. They all still travel to see each other. You know, they, they have these really, really close, bonds of these people that they've known and to see the difference and to know that my actions kind of led to that it was like another punch in the gut where like I said it's it's something that's kind of still in my rear view but to see it brought up again in that way where I had to think about it during you know while planning one of the happiest days of my life I was like well shit <laughs> you know I you know <laughs> It was it was hard to realize that. There's a. Uh, I used to listen to old punk rock bands, and one of them, Minor Threat, has a song called "Straight Edge," and it, being straight edge meant you didn't drink, you didn't smoke, and you don't fuck. And essentially, what they meant was is you don't drink, you don't do drugs, and you don't have one night stands. You only sleep with people you love. Because all three of, and their whole point was all three of those things can screw your life up as much as the next. Mm -hmm. And it's so, it's so true in a sense of if you do have reckless sex with people, it, it can come back and haunt you, whether it be an STD, whether it be just ruining friendships. And I never really thought about the song. I never really thought about why that sex part was on there when i listened to the music i always thought well you know you don't do drugs you don't drink that makes sense but what's wrong with the sex thing and over my lifetime i really truly understand it now whereas when i was you know 15 years old i didn't really comprehend (laughs) what their message was i guess my my question is is i'm assuming you probably had some close girlfriends that you might have uh 
uh, ruined a friendship with or just ruined friendships with because you slept with somebody that was close to them or? Kind of all around. You know, I never, I will say I never intentionally slept with a guy that I knew was in a relationship, you know, because that's kind of the the note that I want to put in here is when all this was happening, Facebook was still kind of in its infancy. And this was kind of also before smartphones. So if you wanted to upload pictures and stuff to Facebook, you still had to use the digital camera and take out the data card and put it in your computer and upload the photos. And, you know, so there was, even if a guy was in a relationship and you did a little Facebook stalking, there was probably a good chance that he didn't have a picture of his significant other on there Mm -hmm. because Facebook was, kind of shitty back then. (laughs) Um, So I never intentionally slept with a guy that was in a relationship. Even though my life was kind of falling apart around me, I still kind of had that moral code. At least I tried to maintain it. There were definitely some guys that um, slipped through the cracks, which I I felt pretty bad about. Um, But yeah, no, I I did. I basically with my girlfriends, because it started becoming such an obsession, I would blow them off. You know, if there would be times where my friends would want to have like a pizza and movie night and they, you know, order pizzas, let's watch some movies, let's hang out, let's have a girl time. And I would be getting ready to go over to their dorm room to go hang out. And if a guy texted me, I'd be like, well, they'll get over it. And I would go sleep with the guy instead. And my friends would be calling me and texting me, like, where are you? Where are you? And I'd be like, I don't fucking care. And it would happen pretty consistently. You know, they'd be like, hey, want to meet up with us at five o'clock to go get dinner at the uh, cafeteria? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. But if a guy texted me, I'd blow him off. And by the time I would get to the cafeteria, um, my friends would be gone and I would have to eat dinner by myself. And I know that they would get really frustrated with me. And I think for a while they didn't really, they didn't know where I was going off to. I think they could probably make an educated guess, but you know, when it started happening so consistently and then they would hear guys talking about me in their classes, they started to really kind of figure out that I was prioritizing these sexual relationships over my friendship with them. And I think any person and rightfully so would be pretty hurt by that, especially since I know a lot of them knew that I came from kind of a shitty family background. And I feel so bad about it now because some of these, the parents of some of these friends of mine, they even tried to kind of take me under their wing. You know, they, they tried to be so nice to me and they tried to be so accommodating to me. And when I got to those levels of not giving a shit, it it makes me feel so bad now. But at the time, I just, I did not care. I had that one thing I wanted to take care of and that was it. And I, you know, and I know what ruined it was um, a friend of mine got engaged right before our senior year of college. And she was getting married right after we, we were to graduate her wedding shower was, I think, the uh, spring break of our senior year. So, you know, this was also a different situation because most of this kind of happened on college campuses and stuff. But 
I RSVP'd to go to her shower and I was getting ready to go. And this guy texted me and he actually lived in another part of town that was about an hour's drive away and his parents were gone and he wanted me to come over. And I said, I don't, you know, I don't got enough money. He was like, he's like, "I'll, I'll give you gas money. And I was like, all right. So I did not show up to my friend's wedding shower so that I could go to this guy's house and sleep with him. And he actually ended up giving me a hundred bucks. And at the time, like I said, didn't give a shit. I know that they were pissed at me. I just was like, eh. And I know that that was the end. It's such a interesting, I guess, uh, dilemma where you're just being really super flaky and unreliable to your friends. And that's what's putting all the pressure on the friendship, which, hey, I that happens all the time where people are flaky or always cancel. But the the definition of an addiction is doing anything that causes harm or causes some sort of issue with relationships. It's some sort of harm in your life or some sort of detriment to your relationships. And this is what you're doing and it is a detriment to your relationship. So I think you just defined a sexual addiction. So I don't, I don't know if there's much argument here that there's a problem and that this isn't a real thing. What you just described is your pretty much ignoring your friendships and your relationships for this thing you're seeking out. Right. Exactly. And that's where it gets a little frustrating when people kind of argue that it doesn't exist because I think it can totally exist. Cause yeah, I mean, there's, there's flaky friends. I would even argue that my husband can be kind of a a flake. I think everyone can be a flake. It's easy to be a flake. We're lazy. We don't want to do anything. (laughs) Exactly. But it's, you know, and with the harming yourself, you know, you're harming, you're harming your relationships, you're harming your friendships. You're, I don't know if you've ever watched the show Intervention, which I watch a little bit, seen a few episodes, but, you know, it, it always kind of amazes me that you can look at those people that have issues with alcohol or gambling or heroin or meth, And there's no question like, yeah, that's an addiction, but you can see a lot of that same um, tendency. Yeah. You know, you're, you're blowing off your responsibilities. You're blowing off friends. You're blowing off family. Anyone that tries to say like, Hey, what you're doing isn't healthy. What you're doing isn't right. You're like, well, fuck you. I don't need you in my life because there were friends that were like, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, you're questioning me. I don't want you in my life anymore. Get out. It's kind of that same pattern. Like, yeah, I, I don't have an, an addiction to drugs, but I look at it as an addiction to people. You're using people. Exactly. To make yourself feel good. I mean, I have friends where I'm like, you need to eat better. You, you have diabetes or you're, you're dying of some terrible thing and I, you're very unhealthy, whatever it is. And they're addicted to food. Mm-hmm. And it's very detrimental on their life because their health is going down the drain and they're they're not making a change. And it's as simple as that. I call that an addiction because it's it's a uh, unhealthy behavior <laughs> that's becoming detrimental. Right. You know. 
you know, like I said, I, I know what I went through. I don't know what sleeping with 70 plus people, what does that mean? And, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, I, I hope not, but I, I'm sure there might be people that are skeptical and just say like, well, maybe she's just a dumb slut. I don't know, you know, and, and Hey, everyone's entitled to their opinion and maybe I was a dumb slut. I don't know. But this, but, but this is on a level, I, this is on a level of, I've been friends with all kinds of guys and women that were very uh, active <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, it was never from one to another, to another, all in one day. It was, you know, maybe they were dating two or three people at the same time, but not mm-hmm. all in one night. Right. And like I said, it, it did lead to levels of me doing things that I think looking back, I'm like, oh God, what was I doing? Because, you know, like I said, after, after that guy gave me a hundred bucks to drive up to his house and sleep with him, I started using that. Um, when I was in college, I, I didn't really party. You know, I didn't like to drink because, you know, in my mind, I think I still had a, that eating disorder. So what's the first thing you hear when you go away to college is, you know, the freshman 15, mm-hmm. the weight gain. And so I was terrified of that. So I never really drank because I associated drinking with gaining weight. I did smoke weed a little bit. So I would sleep with guys in exchange for weed. Um, I would sleep with guys in exchange for money. I really didn't have a lot of money. So it was kind of a supplement. You know, I, I never really charged anybody up front, but it would be like, hey, you got any money for like a sandwich or something? I, I mean, where I went to college, there was actually a pretty significant amount of people that were very, very wealthy. Um, definitely, you know, I came from a pretty middle-class background and, you know, these, these were people that their families didn't even qualify for financial aid. You know, they would pay the $40,000 a year up front. Yeah. You know, there were some really wealthy people. So, I mean, they would think nothing of, you know, throwing me a hundred dollar bill or 200 bucks. And, you know, it it was kind of that compulsion. And then I kind of realized that I could take advantage, which I think is something you also see in, you know, people who are addicted, where they really start to value those really transactional relationships over other relationships. And that really fed into it, too. You know, I look back and I'm like, wow, that was really dangerous and really stupid. I had a roommate that wasn't really around on weekends. She would go home a lot. And so I would stay up on my computer until two, three o'clock in the morning, waiting for someone to message me. Everyone kind of joked that I was a vampire because I never slept Yeah. because I was terrified of the, of missing the opportunity. Like if a guy were to text me at three o'clock in the morning and I would wake up and see the text, I would get mad at myself for not jumping at it. So I started staying up till all hours of the night. And, you know, I would, I would particularly wait until two or three o'clock in the morning because I knew that's when people were kind of coming home from parties. Yeah. You know, if a guy messaged me at two o'clock in the morning, you know, this was, um, I would say my college was like in a fairly, not urban, but kind of suburban setting. There was actually, um, you know, some pretty shady areas around campus. Yeah. And if a guy messaged me at two o'clock in the morning, I would just pack on my stuff and walk over. And I'm like, oh my God, I could have put myself in such harm's way. <laughs> exactly. You, I mean, you're, you're not doing you, rational behavior. You're I, not thinking things through. 
and right. if in today's world, you know, somebody said, Hey, come over, you know, just to watch a movie or something, you know, whatever. And you even wanted to go over there, but anything was a problem. Like, I'm just tired. You're, you're not going to go through that same train of thought. You're not going to go there. You know, you're walking in the middle of the night, you know, you're waiting until two, 3 AM for that call. And then walking by yourself, it's definitely putting yourself in harm's way. And and also, I, I don't know how well you knew these guys that you're going to their house with this intention. I mean, they could have been anybody, I guess. Yeah, there were a few guys where I guess I could call them regulars. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the only way to describe them as kind of regulars. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I... I didn't really think about this until later, but I knew that word must have been spreading about me because I would get these random Facebook friend requests from guys that I didn't know. And they would end up messaging me and wanting me to come over. And it's like, how else would that, this guy that I've never met who I don't know, how else would he know to be like, yo, want to come over? Yeah. I, and that's, that's now I look back and I, it, oh, it's so embarrassing because at the time I was, it was just like, ooh, the supply just kept coming. So I didn't care how these people knew about me or how they knew how to contact me. It was just kind of, oh, another one. Mm-hmm. Nice. Then now I look back and I'm so embarrassed because I'm like, oh my God, people were, telling each other about me. Ugh. It's hard to look back on it because I do feel really embarrassed. It's kind of it's kind of funny because my my now husband, I haven't been back to my campus since I graduated. Mm-hmm. And my husband, he's always like, "Why don't we just, you know, why don't we take a road trip? Go see where you went to school." And I really have no interest in going back there because I know it is just going to bring back waves and waves and waves of embarrassment and bad memories just because now I know that these strangers contacting me got my name from someone else who probably got my name from someone else who probably got my name from someone else. And I'm like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can go back. And it sucks because people, um, if you went to, you know, college, which I know my story is very based around college because that's, that's where I went. You know, college is very much looked at as quote unquote, the best years of your life, which I always thought was kind of stupid. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, you graduate from college when you're 21, yeah. the rest of your life is going to suck everyone. So I never really liked that mentality anyway. Yeah. It is supposed to be this time of self-discover I mean the ages from when you're 18 to 21 I think are supposed to be these years of self-discovery and figuring out who you are and developing friendships and whether or not you go to college I think those are very formative years of your life to have those years just this really horrible black hole of knowing that I fucked up really bad is I mean it's really bad and I I've never really been able to talk about it with anybody except my therapist. Um, like does, my husband doesn't even know a lot of does a he, lot of this. Does he know anything, anything about your past? Um, he he knows about 
well, he definitely knows about my family <laughs> because him and my family have definitely, uh, you know, butted heads yeah. a lot. He's very protective of me. So he's fully aware of that. You know, he's fully aware of the fact I had an eating disorder. When it comes to this other stuff. I, I, I don't think I can stomach telling him really. I, it's just, you know, it goes beyond having a, a bad ex. You know, oh, I had a really bad relationship in my past. I had two really bad relationships in my past. This kind of goes beyond that, where I don't know. If it were if it were flipped around, I don't know how I would feel if my husband came to me and said, hey, listen, I, I, I slept with over 70 people, some of them for money. I don't know how I would feel. I mean, I would still love him, but I think it would make me nervous. Because you'd wonder if he was over his indiscretions or <laughs> yeah i mean it just i feel like it would just be like well you obviously really liked it you know which i think is another misconception that a lot of people have is i really didn't like a lot of the sex that i had but i think when you hear that someone has had sex with that many people for me if the roles were reversed and my husband told me that i would be like is there any chance of you going back to that? Uh-huh. Am I going to, am I going to find out you're cheating on me? Yeah. Which I've never cheated on my husband. I wouldn't even dream of it. You know, he's the love of my life. Yeah. How could you drive away that doubt from someone's mind? Yeah. But I, I think that that what's in your past, he knows that you've gone to therapy. He knows that you have this wonderful family I I think you could tell him and say, this is all in the past and this is how yeah. I was and I've never shared it with you out of these fears. And then you could lay the fears out to him it, mm-hmm. you know, with just the strong disclaimer of this isn't me now. This is who I was. And right. I promise you, I think he would be able to, t- I'm not telling you to tell him, I, I, you know, you can do whatever you want, but I, I, I think that he would be very understanding. And there are things that we sometimes keep from our significant others because we're afraid of their judgment of their rejection. But I think those fears are usually totally unfounded. And these people are with us because they very much care for us more than anyone else on this, on this world. And they're mm-hmm. going they're going to accept us no matter what. I don't know. I mean, if you don't think it's a problem or if it's, you know, the relationship is what it is today and there's no reason to look in the past, then hey, keep going with what with what you're doing. But if if you feel some inkling of I'm not totally open or communicating with your husband, then I would suggest bringing it up maybe when you think would be a good time or in a good place. Right. I've thought about it. I, I definitely have, you know, cause I've also thought in the past of, uh, what if we run into someone that I've done that with? Would he know? Like, I, I almost feel like I've thought about it because I'm like, I would rather have it come from me rather than down the road. If there's some off chance, that we would run into somebody or someone would say something to him or like, I don't know it. The likelihood of that happening, especially since now it's kind of in the past, but I'm still kind of worried about it. Cause I'm like, that would be a shock coming from someone else. 
I kind of have a feeling like he might at least know something because when we first started dating, I guess I'll kind of get a little bit more into the recovery process a little bit. But when we first started dating, I had just gone to my gynecologist for my yearly appointment. And it turned out that I had HPV, which there's many strains of HPV, but there's a few in particular that are more dangerous and could lead to cervical cancer. And I had one of the strains that could lead to cervical cancer. I actually had to have an operation where they actually go in and scrape the tissue from the inside of your cervix. That's how severe it was where they actually felt the need to do that process. And I knew I actually started crying on the the table. A little, maybe a little awkward for my gynecologist, you know, they're down there and I'm sitting up there crying because I knew what it was from. I knew it was because HPV can take a while to manifest itself and get more severe with time. And here I am in a new relationship. You know, he kind of knew because after you have that procedure done, you obviously can't, you can't have intercourse or really put anything up there. So I had to tell my, my now husband, you know, like, hey, <laughs> need to take a little, little break. And, yeah. you know, I told him the process that I had to get done. And I think, you know, he was like, are you okay? I felt horrible because I knew, I knew it was something that someone had given to me because I never had protected sex. It was so risky. And I'm thankful that I never got anything more serious because I never used protection ever. Like I said, here I am, you know, in a new relationship and I get this strain of HPV and I had to get all that done. And that was kind of that final component of the recovery process where I was like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm done with that part of my life. That's the end of it. It was that bookend on it. Well, I mean, and that's easily explained away as, oh, I was in college. Oh, I was Mm -hmm. with one bad person. And... I look at it and I just think, this is your past. And if you wanted to share it, uh, you know, as you were afraid that you might run into somebody, but even if you did, I don't think people are going to point at you and scream. (laughs) I don't think they're going to go shame, you know, from, from across the street or anything. I mean, you heard my story. I put it out there on the podcast. I was like, yeah, I'm going to put all my dirt out here because nobody can come at me later and be like, oh, Justin's a terrible person. No, I, already, so I stole your thunder. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just right. Me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's a matter of taking ownership of it. I've had to do that with my life. I've taken ownership of the fact that I didn't have really a super great upbringing. I actually made the decision to go no contact with my family a few months ago. Um, I've taken ownership of the fact that I had this eating disorder and, you know, now I'm, I'm healthy and I'm happy and I, I've been happy for a while now and I've been able to kind of take back that part of my story and I'm still trying to grapple with some of it. I think I'm just, I'm still trying to kind of claim this story as my own and just say, this is what I did and this is what happened. And, you know, I've, I've come, I've come a long way. After I graduated, a lot of people I knew who had graduated, a lot of them would move into the major metropolitan area near where I live, you know, would be 
living in the city and doing all the young 20 something party scene. And so I actually made the decision to move to the suburbs, which was totally uncool, (laughs) but I think it was the best choice that I ever made because I mean, it was cheaper. So I was able to really get a hold on my finances because I never wanted to get to a point financially where I needed to go back to my mom and dad. I, yeah, I always said I would, I would be homeless before I went back to that freaking house. It also kind of helped because for a while after college, there were definitely still, you know, those moments where people were around and I would still get those calls and I would go up and I would sleep with people. I still did it after college, but after a while, I was really just kind of left alone. And I started seeing it more and more where I would see these guys that I used to sleep with and they were all, you know, they started getting into the relationships. They started getting married. They started moving on with their lives. That was when it also kind of hit me that everyone was kind of moving on. And I had built my life around these quote unquote relationships that had absolutely no legs to stand on. I mean, they were, they were literally just, people. And that was when it really started to hit me that I had no friendships. I had no relationships. I had really essentially nothing. And all these people were moving on without me. And I had nobody. And that was when it really started to hit me. You know, as a new college graduate, I basically had to kind of start from scratch and essentially restart my personality because in sleeping with all of those people, I feel like I also really lost my personality because I, I had no interest. I didn't have fun. Like I said before, it's not like I was going out and hanging out with my friends and having a good time because I was on my computer till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, waiting for people to contact me. You know, like I, I became just this shell of a person and I realized just how totally empty my life was, you know, by living out in the suburbs. I lived in like a cute little kind of main street town, which was really nice, but it wasn't exactly the best place for nightlife and, you know, going out and living the single life or anything, (laughs) which ultimately was really good for me because once that supply kind of dwindled, I was able to kind of start looking internally and start focusing on myself and being like, okay. So it was almost this kind of like forced recovery because like I said, I never contacted those guys. They always contacted me. So once that supply really kind of dwindled out, I was forced to kind of start my own recovery process. I started rebuilding my life and I started rebuilding my identity. I started realizing that there are things that I'm really good at. The first job I had out of college, you know, I'll I'll always kind of hold it very near and dear to my heart, you know, because I I also really value hard work. You know, my good work ethic was always there. I just kind of needed someone to like trigger it. And when I was working in that first job and I would get these really great performance reviews you know, wow, you're doing such a great job. You're a really fast learner, you know, really happy you're on the team. You're doing so great. 
and, you know, nobody really likes work. I, I, you know, I still kind of dread going to work in the morning, but to have that feedback and it was just those little things that gave me that boost where I realized that my personality went beyond being hot and sexy and, Hey, want to come over? It was, Hey, you're a really smart girl Mm -hmm. and you're really making a lot of really great progress and really happy you're here to have that feedback. It was, it was that step that I needed. I started getting into local workout classes. I started going to the library. I started grasping onto these things that I realized that I really liked to do and living by myself kind of away from all of that noise where the supply really dwindled out. You know, a few years later, I met my husband. Just like any, any addiction or any dark time of your life, your, your life's on hold. You're not progressing. You're not getting to that next step. So you, so you, you were a little delayed, but you got there. Or I don't even know if right. you were really that delayed. I mean, most people get a job out out of college, and you did, and that was sort of the, the, uh, the confirmation you needed was working well and getting that positive reinforcement of you're a good worker, you're doing these things, and you're smart. It's therapeutic. <laughs> yes, you know, I've I've since left that job and I've since left that company, but. I'll always look back on it very fondly in that way because it really helped me get a hold of my life. You know, that's not to say there wasn't temptation because the next the next place that I ended up working, it was a job in the city. And this particular company had a lot of pretty young kids working there. You know, I, some of that pattern kind of started to happen where that temptation was there because you know, I would have guys hitting on me. I would have guys emailing me. I would have, you know, these coworkers of mine were trying to sleep with me. And that was hard. That was also kind of a an awakening because there was a guy at that company that I did end up sleeping with one time. You know, by then, that part of my life had like already pretty much dwindled. Mm-hmm. But the one time I sleep with a coworker, I thought he was a nice guy. Like I actually kind of looked at him as someone that maybe I could have a relationship or a friendship with. Yeah. So I'm messaging him at work and I'm sending him IMs and being like, Hey, how you doing? What's up? Like I actually started getting enough confidence where I would initiate conversations with, you know, these people and these guys um, that I was, you know, interested in. And, you know, one day he sends me a text message and he's like, listen, you need to stop sending me messages at work. And I was like, oh, why is that? Is everything okay? And he's like, well, my girlfriend is suspicious. And he, yeah, he had a pregnant girlfriend that he was living with. And he had, uh, he had slept with me. I had no knowledge, had no idea. Like I said, he, he was presented himself as a single guy who seemed nice enough. Yeah. That was kind of one of those other instances where I was like, shit. But, but, and I, I felt horrible. Yeah. But I'm looking at this and let's just compare it to alcoholism. Like, let's say you had a drinking problem in college and then you, mm-hmm. you stop drinking and you're getting your life together. And then you go out one night with your coworker and you have a drink. Mm-hmm. It's probably not the best idea, but 
you slept with this guy, not I, I to me it doesn't sound like you did it with your same pattern or behavior from earlier. It sounds like you were actually trying to date him. <laughs> and that's just yeah. norm, that's normal. That was normal sex, not this impulsive thing. Right, exactly. And so that's why I was kind of, you know, a little proud of myself because, you know, and, and prior to us sleeping together, we had actually gone out to lunch a few times during the work day and we were kind of starting to bud this kind of friendship. And you're right, like it, it was different from the patterns that I had had previously because, you know, by then my self-confidence was already up. I was feeling good about myself. I was really starting to make some positive changes in my life. You know, my career was good. I was living by myself. I was, things were good. And so, and it's like the one time that I actually tried to have a normal relationship with someone (laughs) and this is how it goes. And I was like, okay, you know, and that was kind of that instance where I was like, oh my God. And it felt horrible. Then that was when I was like, okay, I need to take a break Mm -hmm. from all of that. And just stay away from it for a while until I'm 100% sure, first of all, who's a, whoever I'm interested in is single. I mean, that that's probably a good a thing. But also, you know, I was like, I feel like I still got some personal growth because at the same time, I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't have slept with a guy after I only got lunch with him a few times, even though we were talking. Yeah. I'm like, maybe I just, I need to work on myself a little bit more. You know, then it was a little while later where, like I said, I... I met my husband by all accounts is, you know, it's a very healthy relationship there was that bump in the road where like, I kind of thought I was ready to move on from that past and thought I was ready to kind of like move on into a better relationship. And it was like, "Eh, Nope. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) We need to wait a little bit longer, but I was very proud of myself other than the whole pregnant girlfriend thing, kind of really slowing down and trying to take ownership of myself and, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like well, I, I was, I was still trying. I was trying to be healthier about it. Yeah. Well, I think so. it's it shows a, a level of maturity that you're looking at yourself, you're reflecting, and you're understanding. I shouldn't be getting into a relationship right now. I still need self improvement before I'm ready for that. Mm-hmm. Most people they right. don't do that. They just jump in with their mess and then they just go for <laughs> it. Uh, and it, whatever works. But you are not wanting to set yourself up for failure. Right. Hmm. You know, I, I just kept working on myself, my personality and my interests and, you know, really focusing on me. Like I always thought it was kind of lame when everyone's like, in order to love, you need to love yourself first. You know, I was like, yeah, that's some Facebook quote bullshit. (laughs) You know, I never really thought of it as a real thing, but I realized it's, it's really, really true. I mean, I hated myself in high school. I hated myself in college. I hated myself even after college when I was still kind of reeling from all those situations that I went through, you know, and when I finally started to love myself and care about myself as a person, which I know sounds kind of silly, but I, I totally didn't value myself. I didn't give a shit about myself at all. And once I started valuing myself, that was when all these good things really started happening. It is true. I mean, I, I love myself now. I think I've made a lot of really good strides in my life. You know, I'm not perfect, but who is? It's really telling that 
when my husband and I met for the first time, we met through mutual friends. You know, there were some friends from my hometown that I had kind of started rekindling contact with a little bit. And he's also from a town nearby. So we were all hanging out one night and my husband said, he's like, what attracted me to you was your confidence. That was the best compliment ever. I was like, confidence. My God, I never thought anyone would ever tell me that I was confident. He's like, he's like, you just were so strong and confident and sure of yourself. And it was at a trivia night where we actually met and I love trivia. He was like, you were so smart. And he's like, it was amazing. He was like, I need to know who this girl is just to see that progression. It was like, wow, I I did it. Awesome. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> he thinks I'm like hot and sexy and everything too. Not going to lie, but like to have that be the first impression. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this girl is just, she's so confident in herself. I was like, finally, I'm good. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And of course, why, why shouldn't he be attracted to you as a person? You know, that's Right. I always get comments online where people say, oh, your wife's so pretty. And I go, yeah, she's smart, too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. It really opened up my eyes as to how far I've come as a person. You know, it is embarrassing to look back on some of the things that I did. And I wish that there was some way that I could reach out to the people that I've hurt. You know, my my friends. Um. And I wish that there was something that I could do to reach out and apologize to them, you know, because I think I really hurt them. I kind of want to take ownership of that, too. I've been saying sorry to myself for a a long time. You know, I've been kind of apologizing to myself for doing what I did to myself. And I, I kind of wish there was a way to own up to it in other ways, too, because now that I'm in the position where I am, I, I just wish that I could do that. You know, I, I wish that I could somehow make it better. And even if I were to apologize to people, I would not blame them one bit if they said, you know what, go, go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. I would understand. But, you know, I, I, I wish I, I've made so many other things in my life better that I wish there was some way to make that better. Because like I said, it what prompted me to reach out to you was the fact that I put together that wedding list that, you know, guest list for my wedding. And I was like, I just have, I wronged a lot of people as positive as my life is right now. There's, there's still a lot of, a lot of things that I wish I could, you know, make better. I I don't know. So there, there's still, there's still repercussions that I'm feeling, but it's a little hard in that way. And I think deep down you, I mean, I think it's the thought that counts and you might not ever have a opportunity to apologize to anybody you did wrong. And if you Mm -hmm. do come across them someday, I'm sure you will apologize. It'll probably be the first thing out of your mouth, but you can't beat yourself up because opportunity doesn't present itself. You know, it's, it's just how it is. And I think that, you forgiving yourself and improving your own life is what matters most. And with anyone that's ever crossed me in the past and people that I'm like, uh, you're, you're dead to me now, you're, you're out of my life, 
I just hope that they're doing better for themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't wish ill upon them. I just hope that they're got their shit together and they're living their life and they're successful. And if I saw them on the TV or something and they were doing great, I would be like, hey, good for you. But mm -hmm. I don't have to be friends with them. <laughs> I don't have to talk right, to them. Right. You know, I think that you've done as much as you can to make amends, to, you know, gain redemption for what really you feel is your own wrongdoing. These people that you want to apologize to, half of them might just be like, oh, that was 20 years ago. I don't, I've, I've forgotten about it, whatever. <laughs> and they're, they've moved on and you're, and you're wondering, did I hurt this person so bad that they hate me still? And they, you might not even be on their forefront of their mind. Yeah. True. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it just is what it is. I mean, I've, I had some guy from high school run into me and, and apologize to me for something and. I couldn't even remember his name. <laughs> I was like, it's like, I've been to a couple high right. schools. I couldn't remember which high school I went to with him or anything. And he was like, oh, yeah, by the mm -hmm. way, sorry I was a jerk to you that one time. And I'm like, I don't even remember who you are. And not to be a jerk or try to be, you know, like like I'm some big guy or anything. No, it was just I don't remember. That, that was a long time ago. And, and uh, I don't really have any ill will or ill feelings towards anyone from my past because just don't care anymore. <laughs> just a comment. When I was married to my wife, um, I'm still friends with uh, a lot of my exes because we have very civil breakups. At my wedding, I invited a lot of my friends and ex-girlfriends. And uh, my wife, she moved from California to Kansas City. And so she didn't really know anybody here. But her family and friends from California came out. And, and she said, how many people have you slept with in this room? <laughs> I said, well, that would probably be three or four. And then she said, yeah, my number is zero. <laughs> she was like bragging to me about this. And I'm like, okay, yeah. So. <laughs> oh, gosh, how funny. <laughs> but that's, I think that's really admirable yeah. that you can break up with someone and still have that friendship. I mean, I have always thought that that was really cool when people could do that because, you know, you always hear about the bad stories yeah. of people breaking up and TVs get thrown out of windows or restraining orders, or mm -hmm. you always hear about the bad situations, but you never really hear about the situations where things turn out okay. And, you know, it may take a while to get there, but we actually have friends that um, got married last year and the groom, who was a friend of uh, my husband, his parents got divorced years ago, and yet both of them were able, I mean, they're still really close. That was kind of the first time I ever saw a divorced couple, you know, act in that way because during the rehearsal dinner, you know, they stood up and they, they gave a toast and, I mean, they hugged and they were sitting next to each other and it was just like so cool when you can kind of see those situations where there's still a, a healthy relationship there where it's like, hey, you know what, we can put aside our differences mm -hmm. and focus on, you know, the kid, even if the two of us didn't work out or like, hey, we can still be friends or hey, we can still talk without wanting to punch each other in the face. I think that's really admirable. So I've I haven't met many people who have been able to do that. So I always think that's really cool. I'm like, I feel like we need more Jerry and Elaine's in the world, you know? Yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> exactly. And I, I guess I, 
I won't say I judge anyone for not being uh, friends with their ex because I know that oh, no. shit can go downhill, but yeah. I, I look at it and I go, well, I think it's a sign of maturity to be able to at least be civil with somebody who you but, no longer love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's definitely situations where I think it's warranted that you don't keep in contact with an ex. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you can be an adult, be an adult, you know, be cool about it if yeah. you can. I'm an adult and my parents are adults, but there's a reason I don't talk to my parents anymore. <laughs> I, I I was going to say earlier when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, so you're part of the don't talk to your parents anymore club. <laughs> so yeah. Seems to be a running theme on my show. Yeah. And that's kind of a, a hard thing to deal with, too, because my parents are just the type where they're super in denial that they ever did anything wrong. Because like my, my mom would always kind of threaten to kill herself if things didn't go the way they, she wanted to. And then she would tell us like how much she hates us. And I'm like, I don't know how anybody thinks that that's like an appropriate way to deal with the children, yeah. you know, and, and there's just been so much where, you know, cause she always was in denial about, you know, being the primary source of my eating disorder and a lot of my self-esteem issues when I was a kid, mm-hmm. she would always blame it on magazines, which is really, <laughs> really weird. Um, but there, there have been so many times where I wish I could go to my mom and just grab her by the shoulders and shake her and be like, don't you see what you did? You know, I know that they're, they're not going to take any accountability for it. That's also kind of hard to deal with. And it, it was a difficult decision. I mean, it took me a long time to reach that decision. Um, but when I, when I finally did, and it still doesn't, it still doesn't feel great. I don't think any kid who decides to not talk to their parents anymore feels good about it because I think that there's definitely still this period of mourning where you you kind of mourn the parent you wish you had. And especially if you know that they're not remorseful or they don't realize that the things that they've done are wrong. It's hard. It's hard to break away from a parent. It doesn't feel good. And, you know, my, my mom would always say that she's like, I bet you get some kind of sick pleasure out of, you know, being mean to me. And I feel like that there's, there's that kind of perception in society where people get like a sick pleasure of being the estranged child or something. Yeah. And it, it, it sucks. Yeah. And that's, that was kind of the reason why I, I wanted to do that episode was to show that, not everybody is close with their family, close with their parents. And yep. people are always like, well, blood is thicker than water. You should be respectful mm-hmm. to your parents. And I'm like, well, sometimes your parent is this horrible monster and you're not going to continue being associated with them because it's toxic and horrible for that person to continue a relationship. Also, it's a tough decision to make when you finally realize that your parent is so abusive, your parent is so toxic that it's hindering your life. It's it's not just a willy-nilly decision, oh, I hate my mom and I'm running away. No, it's it's everything that you structure a typical life around of having a parent, having this normal lifestyle and you know, a house and a dog named Spot. And then you have to literally say, okay, I'm not the norm. I'm not that society's expectation. I'm not going to talk to my mom or my dad anymore. 
It's hard. Right. And and for people to just think that you're doing it willy-nilly, it's like, no, this is a horrible decision and it hurts every day, but it hurts less than the verbal ons- onslaught that you might be getting from them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And even though it's really hard and I think it's going to continue to get harder, especially, you know, as my husband and I are actually thinking about you know, having kids in the future, you know, in situations like that, other members of the family are really forced to take sides. And I know my siblings are going to be faced with that. Which side are you on? I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to them and be like, you have to pick sides. But when that's coming from, you know, mommy and daddy, you know, they're, that's where families get kind of ripped apart. So then there's like even more guilt associated with it. Cause I'm like, I'm kind of the catalyst for these conflicts. Like I made a decision myself to walk away from my mom and dad and everyone else is going to get pulled into the conflict, even though I don't want them to. But when you've got people like, you know, my parents who are kind of, it's almost like they're trying to gather troops for their side. They kept trying harder and harder to insult me. They tried harder and harder to insult my husband. You know, they, they did some real shitty things. I think it, they couldn't stand to see me confident. Yeah. I, I think they couldn't stand to see that I was in a relationship with someone who was really nice to me and really cared about me and has my back. I think it pisses them off because I think they kind of liked me being down in the dirt. Yeah. Because it made me, it made it easy. I agree with you. <laughs> it's, it's weird that they would want to see you miserable, but it, it's <laughs> almost like that's the old you and that's the expectation and, and they had control over that, but they don't have control right. over this new you. Yeah. You know, and it's hard. It's a really freaking hard decision. And it sucks because I don't know how my dynamics are going to change. I don't know how my family is going to look at me from now on. I don't know where my relationship is going to stand with my siblings from now on. You know, I, I was never really super close to my siblings growing up. So it's kind of like, well, what do they have to lose if they're like, yeah, you know, we don't really want to get part of her drama it, it's a, it's really freaking hard yeah it is it is ain't nobody got time for that shit <laughs> exactly. i mean i'm i'm done and you know i've i've come so so far mm-hmm. that i don't want to be around people that are just going to keep dragging me back down yeah and if you ever do have that conversation with your husband i would like to know how it goes yeah, um, if it happens, I'll let you know. And you know, I kind of, I kind of wish that I could tell him because he's actually a huge fan of Generation Y, oh, and I, I kind of want to nerd out a little bit and be like, "Guess who I talked to yeah. today?" <laughs> but I, yeah. you know, we'll see. But you know, I'll try to shoot you an email or something, and okay. you know. All right. Sounds great. All right. Awesome. Thank you. No problem. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.